Look, it's a very important facility for a lot of people in the Ipsum electorate. A resident that I correspond with fairly frequently uh, is quite distraught and has been in touch with me uh, in relation to the closure of the Laura Ferguson Trust site. Two years ago, one of Auckland's main disability respite and rehab centres closed its doors, citing its precarious financial position after years of deficits. To say the news was a blow to those who used it is an understatement. Some families say there are limited options for their severely disabled children and uncertainty and poor communication is adding to the stress. It's going to be a disaster for the disability community and their whānau in Auckland. It's extremely important because that's the only actual um, break that we, we get. A new feature in this month's North and South magazine delves into the backstory to the closure of the Laura Ferguson Rehabilitation Facility in Auckland, highlighting systemic issues many people in the disabled community will be familiar with. An inflexible, under-resourced funding model, poor communication between those who make the calls and the people they affect, and a dearth of disabled voices when it comes to making decisions. Kia ora, I'm Emile Donovan, and today on The Detail, journalist Pete McKenzie and Auckland student and disability advocate Sophia Malthus on what happened at the Auckland branch of the Laura Ferguson Trust. I think the best place to start is actually a wee while ago. So in the middle of the 20th century, Laura Ferguson, who was the wife of one of our governors general, was touring around hospitals in the country and, according to her son, who I spoke to for this, kept on noticing quite young people with various kinds of disabilities who had been effectively abandoned in hospital wards because they had no other place to go. And so what Laura Ferguson did was she gathered together a collection of some of the most prominent women in the country And they fundraised a crap ton of money to buy these massive tracts of land and build housing with the specific purpose of housing and supporting people with all kinds of disabilities. And in the years since, it started in Auckland and in the years since, it spread to Wellington and Christchurch as well. Your story for North and South, as you say, it concerns the Auckland branch of the Laura Ferguson Trust. Now... My understanding is that the facility that the Auckland branch oversaw shut in 2020. All of its services in Whanganui, Waikato and Auckland will shut up shop by August after the board of Laura Ferguson Trust Incorporated voted unanimously to close them down because it simply can't balance the books. And it sold its property last year. And your story for North and South essentially delves into the the background of that, the factors and the mistakes that sort of led to that. Perfect summary. So let's go through it then. Where would you say that this tale sort of begins? Well, I think the best place to begin is with a person, two people, actually, Antonia and Ronnie Tua. They live actually relatively close to Laura Ferguson. And Ronnie Tua has a kind of cerebral palsy that means that he can't walk, talk, or feed himself. And so Antonia has to do a lot of that caring for him. But that obviously takes a lot of strain. So for most of Ronnie's life, they've been accessing what are called respite services, where people from Spectrum Care, a disability services organization, would come in once or twice a week 
and give both of them a break. And both of them knew that that service had a time limit. Spectrum Care only supported people up to age 21, and, and Ronnie was coming close to that by around 2020. And so they were looking at Laura Ferguson, which was going to be, as Antonia put it, the place that was always going to be there for them. They were hoping that Ronnie was going to transition there for the rest of his life. And lots of people were in this position, people who were either already at Laura Ferguson, about kind of 150-odd, just under. People were at Laura Ferguson in respite care or residential care, or people who were hoping to go to Laura Ferguson, people who had always had that as the next step in their plan. But Laura Ferguson, for years, had been struggling quite significantly with cash flow. They were juggling all sorts of complicated contracts with the Ministry of Health, with the ACC, with all of the different funding organizations that they were engaged with. They didn't have a lot of control over who was assigned to them for care. And eventually, as they say it, it got too much. And so they closed. There's a lot of financial intricacy in the story. That's really interesting about, you know, appropriate financial payments. The board of a struggling charitable trust set up to help disabled people spent $670,000 of public money and donations on consultants, including paying its own chairman close to $100,000 for writing reports. Or about how they navigated those payments when other branches of the wider law folks and trust seem to have been able to do it. But all of that to one side. The more fundamental problem is that when Laura Ferguson in Auckland closed, they didn't warn people. It really came out of the blue. And so Antonia and Ronnie Tua, or any of the other people who live with disabilities and the family of people who live with disabilities who had been relying on Laura Ferguson, who had previously relied on Laura Ferguson, for whom Laura Ferguson was such a big part of their lives, it was a huge shock, and it, it devastated quite a few of them. In 2016, I broke my neck at work. So I was a 19-year-old, and I stayed at the Auckland Spinal Unit for three months. Sophia Malthus is a disability rights advocate and law student. And then upon my discharge, I didn't have an appropriate place to go live because my parents had a five-story townhouse, um, which is not wheelchair accessible. And so they were in the process of buying a new property that was flat and had more land for me to go live with them. And so during that time, I had to stay at Laura Ferguson for nine months. Um, My only options were Laura Ferguson or a rest home. And so now that there is no more Laura Ferguson after the closure, um, the only option is a rest home. I mean, what was it like at Laura Ferguson? You spent three months, I think, in in the spinal unit at Auckland Hospital. Going from that sort of environment to Laura Ferguson, what was that like? I guess the spinal unit was pretty much just being on a hospital ward. There was nurses at the ring of a bell. Even you could just call out to them, they were everywhere. And then at Laura Ferguson, it was more of a village. And, you know, I had my own little unit. There was a little kitchenette, my own bathroom. Everything was kind of centered around me being as independent as possible. And then when I needed somebody, I would push the bell and they would come when they were free. And so it was kind of like a halfway house between going home and kind of being by yourself with your caregivers and being in hospital, which obviously 
you become quite institutionalized after being in hospital for three months. So it was a really valuable place for me to become prepared to go back home. Was there like a difference in, in, in sort of vibe and like the feeling of the environment as well? Oh, definitely. In, in the spinal unit, you're very fresh with your injury. And so, you know, you're treated to be quite precious. There's quite a lot of bubble wrap. And so just, I'm not sure if this is appropriate, but for example, I wasn't allowed to wear a bra while I was in the spinal unit. And then when I got to Laura Ferguson, they were helping me get dressed and they said, what bra do you want? And I was just like, wow, like this is so different because the spinal unit was helping me to become stable in my health. But Laura Ferguson was teaching me what I can do as a disabled person. It is really important that you go through different levels of care and also different levels of understanding about your disability because you need to have other sources of education. When your whole life has changed, you can't just learn how to live a new life from one source. Let's talk a bit about the financial side of things and how the trust found itself in a situation where the board felt it had no option but to close down its its services. I think there's two key things here. First of all, they had enough land. Land wasn't the problem. Income was and maintenance was. And let's start with maintenance first. The charity, particularly in Auckland, has been around for a really long time. And so what Laura folks in Auckland found was that they're in the classic challenge of being land rich, but that their buildings were falling apart and they didn't have the money to maintain it in the way that they needed to. And that's because of income. The way in which Laura Ferguson and all sorts of disability services organizations get their funding is complicated. They get a lot of their funding from the Ministry of Health, who fund disability support services for people who were born with disabilities alongside a range of other people. And that funding tends to be relatively sparse. And not only sparse, but also very hard to change. You know, the Ministry of Health would estimate how much it would cost to care for a person, but then wouldn't change that if the number actually turned out to be greater. Heather McLeach, the CEO, former CEO of Laura Ferguson, who I spoke to, would just tell these stories about dealing for months with an intractable Ministry of Health that just wouldn't change those estimates. So that really caused a problem. They got some of their funding from ACC, which was more generous. But even then, they were dealing with, you know, this huge churn within the government bureaucracy, dozens of people over a few years. So there was never any consistency in the kind of support they were getting. The sector is in the midst of a, of a financial crisis that has been brewing for many years. Providers are increasingly struggling with their own financial sustainability. They are increasingly struggling to maintain the levels of quality and safety in their services that uh, they want to. And in that sense, you know, we're talking about potential tragedies that are waiting to happen here. So in some, not a lot of money buildings in need of repair, a really hard position to be in. So the trust would say its financial situation, and it started posting deficits year on year, six-figure, seven-figure deficits. The trust would say, or the, the board rather, of the Auckland branch of the trust would say that its precarious financial situation was caused by inadequate 
government funding or public funding and pretty rigid funding systems that don't take into account dynamic provider needs. Yes, exactly. The trust says that it had no choice but to close. But you came across some people, some critics of the trust and the board that some of the funding decisions were questionable. Leaked documents show a cash-strapped Auckland Trust for people with disabilities paid senior staff bonuses to manage its closure. Dennis Lane is a retired forensic accountant who, until the first lockdown, regularly used the pool at the Laura Ferguson Trust. Curious about the Trust's claims about its dire financial position, he examined their most recent financial statements, which showed a million-dollar loss in 2019. However, this included a number of one-off items, such as consultancy fees for business advice and a payment to the board chairman, Chris O'Brien. We're talking about $693,000 on consultants, including you know, the big consulting giant PwC for advice on its business model. We're talking you know, $490,000 on consulting fees and $45,000 on due diligence inspections by its board chair. Um, You know, these are big sums of money. And again, the trust would say that this was necessary, that, you know, it needed advice on what to do, that it was just paying fair market rates for the services that its board chair provided. But when you're looking at other branches of the law of folks and trust in Wellington and Christchurch, as one of the leaders of the Wellington Trust says, you've got to cut your cloth. And, you know, this is money that could have been spent prolonging the inevitable, supporting the transition of people into other support services. This was money that you really have a duty of care over, and there's controversy over how it was spent, at the very least. The only perspective I've had since I found out about the closure is what would happen if I needed to go to Laura Ferguson now, because every three and a half days someone breaks their neck in New Zealand, and that's just spinal cord injuries. That's not all of the other people with disabilities that need facilities like Laura Ferguson. And the only option being left rest homes, I just don't feel comfortable with people like myself being stuck in a rest home. We're getting so much more conscious of mental health at the moment. And it kind of goes hand in hand. How can we be so careful about protecting people's mental health after they've just become disabled or after they're recovering from a massive surgery or whatever situation? someone finds himself in how can we be honoring their mental health while expecting them to live in an environment like a rest home where they're surrounded by elderly people passing away and being at that stage of their life when the person with a disability is at a stage in their life where they're needing to gain independence it seems another criticism here is that Many of the decisions pertaining to the future of the Auckland branch of the Laura Ferguson Trust seem to have sort of taken place in the shadows and that the newly established uh, Ministry for Disabled People was not especially happy to learn that the trust was going to be closing down in 2020, Pete. No, no, I think not especially happy is a good characterization of their response. They said that they got no warning of it, which is a pretty frank thing to say as the government. I was surprised when I got that response from them. They said because they got no warning of it as well, they weren't able to intervene. They said that they would have done something to try and stop the closure if only they had known. Now, the trust 
challenges that characterization of events. But it is, I think, symbolic of the confusing and at times secretive approach to the closure that the Laura Ferguson Trust in Auckland took. You know, the partners that it had in government, according to their assessment of events, didn't know what was happening. And because they hadn't told those government partners, they, the Laura Ferguson Trust, also said it didn't feel able to tell the people that they were serving. So the closure came as a massive shock to the people who were living in those homes, to the people who were receiving those respite services. One of the wider themes to Peter's piece that comes through in many of the interviews that that he's done with people who are living with disabilities is the idea that this is a thing that happens quite a lot, that decisions are made that affect people with disabilities, but the people who, who those decisions affect aren't asked about them, they're told about them. And oftentimes, you know, after the point at which anything can be done, even if there are viable alternatives. I mean, is that something that resonates with you? Yeah, there's the saying nothing about us without us. And I absolutely agree with that. I also have to say that there's, you know, I've I've only been a disabled person for six years and I've experienced, most of what I've experienced has been led by a non-disabled person. And it can work out. I'm not saying that the board isn't good because they don't have disabled members because they do. They One of the um, trustees is a disabled friend. So I, I can't say that that is the reason why this has happened. But there does need to be consulting with the disabled community and there was very little to none of that with the closure of Laura Ferguson. I always, always think that the disabled community is the most forgotten minority even though we are probably the biggest minority. And so, yeah, it takes a hit. When we went to Parliament, we found out that the Ministry of Health would have provided funds had Laura Ferguson asked. We should say here that the Trust disputes this. It says the Ministry only offered forensic accountancy services and that they were told there was no funding available. And also we've got family members of the founding members of the trust that have joined us in our campaign and are saying that they, if they'd known the financial position of the trust, they would have provided money. And so knowing that it's, (laughs) it puts me in a position where I know that there's funds available And I know that there's a need from the disabled community and it's just not being put together. Yeah. And that was the trust's job to align the funds in the disabled community and bring them together. That's one of the things that strikes me about this story as well is the the avoidability of it, the waste. It's, It's a huge waste, particularly because, as we know, it was a private sale of the facility and the land And so it's all of a sudden gone. Nobody knew about it. There was no warning. And the facility that they had was great. Like the gym was great. The residential area needed work, but I still lived there happily. It was still functional. There is one shining light in this story. When the Trust's facility closed down in 2020, residents did have somewhere to go. 
the disabled care provider Spectrum, which we talked to Pete about earlier, found capacity to take them on. As for the Laura Ferguson Trust, it settled the sale of its land and facilities last year for around $47 million. But that's led to another controversy. Some people feel the Trust should be reinvesting that money to buy new land and build a new facility. But Pete McKenzie says the Trust has other plans. Instead of using the money to buy a new plot of land, to build a new set of buildings, to kind of effectively pick up and carry on as they were going before, the Trust is reorienting and they're focusing on funding other disability initiatives, research and support services in the space of autism, for example. And that has also caused frustration amongst critics. I've got to be careful here. There's an ongoing court case, um, so I don't want to get in in front of a judge. But the crux of the, the court case is that Laura Ferguson Trust's deed, the kind of central mission, is to provide residential and care services to people with disability. And the question then is, are you doing that by putting money into all sorts of these other worthy but different causes? This is not a simple story in that you can understand the difficulties that the board had to deal with. You can understand the frustration with funding and and it certainly seems as though the needs of the people living with disabilities who use these services were not front of mind in a lot of ways in this. And you can see how they might feel patronised or uh, condescended to or that they weren't kept in the loop. Um, but, w- I mean, in in summary, what do you want people to sort of t- take out of this story? What What did you take out of it? I think it would be a few things. The first is that you're right. The people who I spoke to for the story, regardless of what side of the dispute they fell on, all seem to me to be well-meaning and well-intentioned and that it was operating in a difficult and underfunded system that either inspired their frustration or which caused their difficulties. And so the focus has to stay on that system. Our system for supporting people with disabilities is chronically underfunded. And it's a lottery. You know, if you are born with a disability, you get a different amount of money and a different amount of support than if you pick one up later in life or pick one up at the workplace. And that's just fundamentally not fair. But finally, I think it has to be that disabled people are people. They know what they need better than anybody else. And By respecting that and by making space for those people to take the lead and to take control of the resources that are going to fund their care, that can only be a good thing. I just want there to be more thought around what happens to people that have disabilities that aren't at an age where it's appropriate to live in a rest home because there is a huge number of people living with disabilities in New Zealand that aren't retirement age and they're not being served. There's a massive hole and we're only getting a bigger disabled population. No one's becoming undisabled. Um, It's just something that we need to start focusing on a bit more. 
That's it for today. I'm Emile Donovan. The Detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. Today's episode was engineered by Blair Stagpool and produced by Sarah Robson. Bonnie Harrison is our associate producer. And thanks to Pete McKenzie and Sophia Malthus. Matewa. Te